Amen. <clears throat> hey, uh, give me 15 minutes this morning to unpack Colossians 1 for us. Open your Bibles, pull out your phones, whatever your de device or choice is to engage the Word. Open up to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We're in a series called Dark Friday. It's a seven-week series as we focus on the cross and unpack the meaning of the cross for our lives. Um, as you turn to the Word, I love this church. I love you. Uh, I, I get a chance throughout the year to speak at different events and, and places, yet I love that I can tell other people there is no place I love to preach more than right here in this home church. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says this. He is, and if you underline in your Bibles, I want you to underline, highlight, circle. Every time you see like a phrase like he is or in him show up in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and in invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross." Now for the reading of the word, the church says, one of my favorite statements of Jesus in all the Bible. He is in him, all things. It, it's just, it sums up Christology, the power and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. In your Bible, in the end of verse 20, some of your versions may have the, that there is making peace through the blood of the cross. But in the Greek, it's actually, it's, it, it's possessive. It, it, it's literally the cross of him. So it's his cross. There's ownership. It's something that Jesus owned and took upon himself. Now, Paul writes this to the church of Colossae. And he's not just writing at the beginning of this letter. He's not just writing this as a way to inspire them or to encourage them. Or, hey, there's this knowledge of Jesus. And let me just share this with you to bless you. He is writing this to fix something that has gone awfully wrong in that church. So this isn't just because he's trying to inspire them with like this new song to sing about Jesus. It's because they have forgotten who Jesus is. So he's placing this at the very beginning to let them know who Jesus is. And you can't forget this. So Paul, here, here's something about the church in Colossae. Paul didn't plant this church that we know of. In fact, what we know of when he wrote this to the church of Colossae, which he writes this from a prison, but Paul didn't, he had never even visited them, but he loved them. He cared deeply about the church. And Paul didn't take this approach like some people maybe you've known in the past who like something's wrong with the church, so let's just write them up in some magazine or journal. That's not what Paul is doing. He deeply cared about the church and believed that the church was God's force in the world and he wanted them, they need to have Jesus right. Epaphras is the one who planted this church. In Colossians 1 verse 7 and 8, it's this you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and he has made known to us your love in the spirit. In Colossians 4, 12 and 13, it's where Paul acknowledges that Epaphras is constantly wrestling in prayer for them. Which is, you only have, I think, three times where Epaphras, Pappy, I think they called him Pappy back then, where he shows up in the Bible, all right? And all three of this encouraging words and affirmation of who this man was. 
Paul, uh, the church of Colossae was also connected to the churches of Laodicea. So if you've read Revelation and uh, chapter 2 and 3 where Jesus addresses certain churches, when he speaks to the church of Laodicea, there's a good chance he's also speaking to the church of Colossae. They're two cities that were close to one another. In fact, in Colossians 4, 15 and 16, Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea. And then what he says is, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read among the church of Laodicea, and then you need to read the letter I sent to them, which we don't have that letter. But it lets you know these churches are deeply connected. So the problems facing Colossae were also problems the churches in Laodicea were facing. And here was the problem. The problem was Gnosticism. K or G-N-O-S-T-I-S-M, Gnosticism. Let me spell that again, okay? G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. It's Gnosticism. It's, it, what was happening is you had this Gnostic way of teaching where th these people came in, and they're like philosophers, and they're having a big trouble. They're having a lot of trouble holding together how Jesus could be fully divine and fully human. Because if he's divine, he can't be human. If he's human, he can't be divine. And they were struggling with it. So what they did is they made Christianity into a philosophy, a philosophy among all the other philosophies, because they could not wrap their minds around this reality that Jesus could be fully God and fully human. And there was really no in-between. In like he could be half one and half the other. And this became a real big problem for them. And it began in, uh, coming into this church. And, and then you also had other problems in the church of Colossae. It's often called like the Colossae uh, heresy, the Colossians heresy, where you had others who were telling you you had to obey like certain uh, or honor certain days of the, the year, weeks of the year, certain festivals and, and these customs that it became this way of Christianity where, hey, there's, there's Christianity and Jesus, but there's also all these other things you need to follow. And it became this big problem for them. So Paul writes to the church of Colossians, and this is important, write this down if, you, if you're taking notes. Usually when we do problem solving. We have a problem and then we try to solve it. And usually when Paul's writing to the church, this is how he goes about it. But in Colossians, he takes a different route. Where in Colossians, instead of stating what the problem is and then trying to give you a solution, he begins with the solution and then goes to the problem. And I think this is a great move on his part. So it's not that, hey, let me state everything that's that you're doing wrong and how you're getting Jesus wrong and how this is, is heresy. Let me begin with the solution of who Jesus is and that he was there with God in the beginning and how powerful he is and he's the creator of all things and he, he's reconciling all things to himself. He begins with a solution and then, go, then goes to the problem. You have learned this in life. You've learned this through whatever experience you've had with, with, with medicine or people you know who have had an illness before. This is true in your marriages. It's true in workplaces. If you misdiagnose the problem, you will misdiagnose the solution. And if you misdiagnose the solution, you don't take seriously what the problems are. So Paul's letting them know, hey, here's the solution. So let's begin with this. It's Jesus, and we've got to get Jesus right. And then from there, we need to talk about the problems. Christology, the study of Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, how you follow Jesus has to be right. Now, sometimes what happens in life, especially in a kind of a self-help kind of culture that we're in right now, is it, it's way too easy for us to think, let me fix me, and if I can begin to fix me, then I can begin to put Jesus in the right place. You need to put Jesus in the right place in your life, and then trust that Jesus can help fix who you are. 
Or it's, hey, let's fix the church. And once we fix the church, then we can get Jesus right. Or let's fix the way worship needs to be crafted. And once we fix that, we can get Jesus right. Or let's fix our financial situation. And once we get that fixed, then we can talk about what it means to be more devout followers of Jesus. We've got to put Jesus in the right place first and foremost. Now, what happens too often in our culture is this, this really, it's, it's bugging me. I'm having to wrestle with this a lot. The way a lot of people in our culture, in, in, in the Christian culture, use the word Christian doesn't line up with the life of Christ. Christian, in way too many circles, has become a way that we talk about moralism. So it's just, it's the Christian thing to do, or it's the Christian thing not to do. It's about moralism. It's become like a slogan. And, and this is so true around Christmas, all right? A lot of times you hear the phrase, we need to keep Christ in Christmas. Here's what I'm way more concerned about, is that we are keeping Christ in Christian. The Christian is not just a belief system. It's not just something you align with the beliefs or the way of thinking of Christian. It's that you are a devout follower of Jesus, pursuing Christ and letting Christ teach us what it means to be Christian. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, safeguards against heresy. It's that Jesus is God's agent, and in and through Jesus, creation came about. And not just creation, but recreation. Reconciliation happens. It reveals that it is in and through the work of Jesus. That healing and salvation and redemption comes to your life and to everything around you. It highlights who Jesus is. It's the work of Jesus. Uh, I heard a story not too long ago. Henry Nouwen told a story about uh, flying trapeze artists. And maybe you saw the, the movie that just came out recently, The Greatest Showman, where you have people jumping around. We thought about reenacting this for you today, where I was going to jump and Kip was going to catch me, but we decided this would be too much of a hazard, all right? Uh, Henry Nowen was writing years ago, and he had been talking to a flying trapeze artist. And what this person told him was, when you are a flying trapeze artist, if you are the flyer, your job is to fly. And it's the catcher's job to catch. The flyer's responsibility is you fly and you stretch and you wait to be caught. And if the flyer tries to catch the catcher, it's going to go all wrong. It's the flyer's responsibility to fly and to trust and to wait. It's the catcher's responsibility to catch. And when it comes to Christianity... And the way it works with Jesus, it's not your responsibility to try to catch Jesus. It's that you need to trust in how Jesus can catch you. We, we don't reach for him. It's Jesus reaching for us. And because he reaches for us, we're able to cling to him. It is his work, his initiative. Because of what Jesus has done, we are able to come to him. Colossians 1, 13 uh, and 14. And then Colossians 1, 19 and 20. State this. And this is where uh, Paul uses the work of God or the work of Jesus on the cross to talk about what it means uh, of who Jesus is. In Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Paul is looking at the cross as this event that changed everything. There are a few things that he highlights about the work of the cross, and and you'll notice in all of these words he uses, he speaks of them as something that has happened. 
It's not that if you keep trying to hang on to Jesus that one day you will be purchased or you will be forgiven, that there are things that have happened. There's a song we used to sing when I was in college. You know, can he still feel the nails every time we fail? And man, people would cry and, and people would boo because the, the thought was, and even the way the song goes, is if I, when I sin, it's like I am nailing Jesus to the cross again. The answer to the question of can he still feel the nails every time I fail is no, he can't. Because he's not still on a cross. Jesus doesn't feel pain of the cross every time you sin. What, the, what is highlighted and why you see throughout the Bible, in the book of Hebrews and other places, is that once and for all, Jesus offered up this sacrifice where he took upon himself the sins of the world. And in that event, something powerful happened. You were purchased. You were redeemed. You were forgiven. Here are five words, and you, you feel free. Write these down, okay? Carry these with you. Let them bless you this week. Share them with someone else. Five things in Colossians 1, 13 and 15 and 19 through 20 that the cross teaches us. Number one, we were rescued. He rescued us. It's, it's Egyptian language. It's language from, from Egypt, from Exodus, that we were rescued. God has taken us from one place the next word is that because of this, we have been transferred. The thing with God is when he saved you, he didn't just pick you up or take you out of the waters of baptism and then place you next to it or, or on the, the beach next to the water and pat you on the back and wish you good luck. He transferred you into the light. Number three is you have been purchased. We have been purchased. This work is accomplished. It was accomplished at a great cost. It wasn't just the wave of God's hand to bring salvation. It's that we were purchased and it took the blood of Jesus and the death of Jesus where he, in order to take on death in you, he took on death itself. Number four is forgiven, that we have been forgiven. Um, the word forgiven can also be released, which is a way for you to think and to pray about the forgiveness of sins. It's the release of sins. There is this force that comes with it. It's, and here's the deal. I know there are people in this room that you struggle with anxiety, deep forms of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and you have prayed for weeks, months, maybe years for God to take it from you. You have cried out to God for God to speak light into your darkness, and it doesn't seem like it has happened. I'm not making this force through what Jesus has accomplished at the cross sound like a simple prayer you pray. But here's the deal. The, the church needs to remind each other. The church needs to remind the church that Jesus's power has taken down all the other powers. And even when you are struggling to believe that the powers of evil that are working on you have been taken down by the power of Jesus, it's the church that needs to be reminding each other that the power of Jesus has taken down the powers of evil. So when we hand communion to one another, this is more than just handing a tray. We are handing the power of an event that has completely changed the world. We need to hand communion to each other with more force. And I'm not talking about, talking about throwing trays, all right? I'm not talking about throwing it into someone's chest, but believing that when I am handing the body of Christ to the person next to me or the cup to the person next to me, I'm not just handing them the elements. I'm handing them the story of an event that has changed the entire cosmos. This is a force. And in this force, there is forgiveness. And the fifth thing is reconciliation. That at the cross, Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. What you learn in Colossians 1 through 15 through 20, what Paul needs this church in Colossae and the Sycamore View Church to believe is Jesus, the world was created by him, the world is reconciled by him, and because it has to be reconciled, it also means that we have been separated from him. 
there are barriers to reconciliation. And this is true for every individual, but also with the crosses where Jesus took down every system that divides people. Racism, ageism, just keep naming them. And Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Jesus' death did something. And the church, even though they knew it did something, they also knew that at that time, Caesar still sat on the throne. And the powers of Rome seemed to keep doing what the powers kept doing. So here's how Paul ends it in Colossians 1.23. And you who are once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil things, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. And here's the responsibility. Listen to this in verse 23. Provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard. We keep standing on these promises. There was a story in uh, National Geographic of a, a fire that broke out at Yellowstone. And when this happened, the park rangers went out after the fire to assess the damage. And they came upon this one bird. It was petrified. It was covered in ashes. This bird was dead. And one of the park rangers took a stick. And when he poked it, these little baby chicks came running out under this mother. There was this mother that in this moment of danger took her wings and covered up her babies. And in her death, she kept them alive. All right, the wings of God have covered us. Now, every metaphor breaks down sometimes because the way it works with Jesus isn't that his death kept us, of, uh, us alive. It's that in his death, we are able to be brought back to life because we were fully dead in our sins and are in need of the movement of Jesus and the story of Jesus to speak into our lives, to call us back to life. And it is through his death that we have been purchased and we can come back to life. So may this word of God bless you as you leave this place today and as you go throughout your work week that the work of God has been accomplished. Will you trust in the story? Will you trust Jesus to catch you and to use you throughout this week? For the elders and prayer leaders, go where you are supposed to be, where you're stationed in this room to receive people. We're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a song together as a church. I ask for you to sing this as a declaration of our faith and what God is doing among us. Let's stand, let's sing. Feel free to come and find one of our leaders.